going to be taking a look at 1 Samuel 24 today. Last week we looked at the 25th. The 24th, I think, is going to be something that speaks well to us. You don't always see that, I know, on the surface of things, but I think it will speak well to us about the communion supper that's coming up. As We remember that as we go through the scriptures, we look at them from a Christian point of view. We look at them as Christians from beginning to end. We don't rip out half the Old Testament or half the Bible, as it were, and say, well, we're just New Testament Christians. The Old Testament speaks to us as well, because all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for us. So we're looking at 1 Samuel 24, sermon titles, Trusting the Just Judge, today. Let's start with verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward... David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. And whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog. After a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. 
As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he not will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. As far as we're going to read from God's word, thankful we could be in prayer and ask that it would be a blessing to us. Brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's tempting, isn't it, to take matters into your own hands, or for me to do that. Because we want to be able to be in control of our lives. Or we might be too impatient for God's timing. We want something that might be even good. Sometimes it's not, but we want something that's, that's good. And we are looking towards the future and it's hard to wait for what God has in store. If he has that indeed in store for us. And so sometimes... Uh, we will end up doing something bad in order for ourselves to get what at least we perceive to be something good. We talk about that as running ahead of God. But those who know Jesus, what he's done, and what he's promised, what he's reminded us of and assured us, can avoid that kind of unrighteous approach where the end justifies the means. They can count on God working out everything in his time. You know, when people will say to you, everything's going to be okay. People say that even if they're not Christians. But the real people who can say that are the people who are Christians, who profess Christ, who make it a priority to profess Christ. They know that in the end, everything's going to be okay. They get reminded and assured of that in the communion supper, in fact, about that day that's coming when we will commune everlastingly at the table of the Lord. We know that everything in its time will work out. And we can count on the Lord to work those things out, even at unrighteous moments, so that we can take a righteous approach to life and not an unrighteous one. We can see that truth in this passage this morning. David's one of those, of course, he's a classic one for us that way, because Christ is the son of David. We can see David as being that kind of Christ typical person in the Old Testament. Now, he wasn't always like that. We know that. That's why Christ had to come. But he is one of those Christ types of the Old Testament. 
where he puts his trust in the one who judges justly. He does that here, doesn't he? He's not going to take vengeance on Saul. He'll leave that to God. He's going to trust in the one who judges justly. And he believes then that in God's timing, God will lift him up. It doesn't look like that right now. But he knows that's the way it is. And so we want to focus on that theme this morning as we look at David's deeds, his words, and his oath in 1 Samuel 24 that David is trusting the God who judges justly. We first of all look at his deeds. Now, the backdrop to David's deeds displays a shame that's going on here. There's a shameful injustice, right, if we look closely. Saul chooses a hand-picked group of 3,000 people. We talked about how Nabal had his 3,000 last week. Well, we see Saul having 3,000 here, and he uses 3,000 men to chase David, who is portrayed here as this one who's an alien, who's a wanderer, who is in the rocks of the wild goats, or the crag of the wild goats. A very precarious play. I mean, if there's wild goats up there, you know if you've ever seen anything going on with wild goats, or sheep, or wild sheep or rams, they can, they can sit there on these precarious places and they can hop around and spring about. You go, how do they do that? But it's a precarious place. And that's where David is. And that's where Saul is pursuing. The number of men of Saul versus the number of men of David is five to one. But also the amount, and that's maybe more importantly, that Saul took is the same amount that he took against the Philistines when he went, first became king in 1 Samuel 13. And so David's being treated like the Philistines. He's being treated like the unjust when in the passage all we hear is that he's anything but that. Now more of that, and that's a shameful thing. That's part of the shameful backdrop here. But there's more to it. More of the backdrop, more of the background to David's deeds is Saul relieving himself in the cave. And that also spoke to Saul's behavior. Now back in Judges chapter 13, verse 24, the attendants of Eglon, you will recall, were waiting to the point of embarrassment or for shame for Eglon. And they were thinking that he was doing the very same thing that Saul's doing here. When actually what had happened was that the Lord had delivered Eglon into the left hand of Ehud. And Ehud himself said to Israel that the Lord had handed Israel's enemy into their hands. Well, that episode pointed out the glory that God gave to the humble, which Ehud, the left-handed, had, and also the shame that came to the glorious, which is what Eglon had. Right? And of course, Hannah, early on in 1 Samuel, as a prelude to what Mary would say later when she had the Christ child uh, born to her, 
It says the same things, right? That God would humble the proud, and He would, she would give, God would give grace to the humble. God had turned the tables in His just and righteous ways. Well, now here Saul is viewed as this shameful king, you see, and he's indeed the one that is caught unaware. Though David is the one without home, he's wandering, as it were, without a country and a home to call his own. Own The shame doesn't belong to David. It looks like that. It's kind of like when Jesus is in the manger. I wrote an article about that for the newsletter coming up. You know, Caesar Augustus looks like he's the great one. He's the mighty king, and he decrees that everybody needs to go get taxed. And Jesus is in the manger as a baby, and you think, well... It sure looks like Caesar Augustus has won over, the government has won over on the Christ, but that isn't the way it is at all, and that's not the way it is here either. The shame doesn't belong to the one who's being pursued, but the one who's pursuing. And he's conspiring against the true anointed of the Lord, and then in turn against the Lord himself. Later he has to admit that. That the kingdom is going to be established in David. Well, we learned a lesson here that for ourselves, if we say, okay, well, what does this have to do with us? Well, we learned a lesson here that there is no glory in conspiring against the Christ of God. It's shameful. It is shameful when we think that happiness, good times, fame, popularity, fortune is to leave the cause and the work and the way of the Lord Jesus behind. That that is secondary at best and these other things are primary at best. You don't have to be a religious guru like the Pharisees or the scribes or a powerful political figure like Pontius Pilate to try to do that. Though there's been plenty of those who have tried to do that, who have tried to find their glory by shaming Christ. It doesn't even have to be the people who want nothing to do with the gospel who turn their backs on Christ, or who think they can live life in glorious ways without Christ. Because sad to say, that even when we're Christians, and whenever we sin, and if we don't think we sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, but whenever we sin, we shame Christ. It does not glorify Him. And that's our life. That's what it's supposed to be about, isn't it? And it brings shame to our lives, whether we admit it or not. And it's hard sometimes for us to admit our shame. Right? But we must not get comfortable with our sin and with our shame. And we will, we will not want to be when we're reminded and we are assured of what Christ came to do for us. Where Christ himself came so that we might have our shame taken away. 
we won't want to be shameful ourselves the more and more we think about the shame that Christ undertook for us on Calvary's cross. We get reminded and assured of that again as we remember the Lord's death until He comes again. If we, if we really want the kind of proper glorification in our lives, it's going to be found when it's our desire to bring glory to Christ, to find in Him our salvation, to glory in His salvation, and to glory in living for Him, right? That's where our glory is found. Not in our own seeking of it, but in our own glorification of Christ and not shaming Him. But David has opportunity. Here's Saul conspiring against David, who's the true anointed, and David has an opportunity to take him out like Ehud had Eglon. And his men offer the counsel. It's not that David probably couldn't see it himself, but he, now he gets backed up by his buddies. Right? Which is always something of a challenge for us when we're pressured by our peers. This is, this is God's will here. And all you got to do is drop your sword, or the sword of Goliath, and he probably still has, upon Saul, and your troubles will be over. Now, just because you and I have something drop into our lap by God's providence doesn't mean that that's necessarily God's will for us to do X, Y, or Z. It might be just the opposite. Of course, we won't know that unless we keep the Word of God before us. See, these men, they act as if God had said that David would have his day with Saul. See what our passage says about that. This is just like what God said. God never said this. When do you read in the scriptures that God ever said that he was to, that David was supposed to take Saul out? Now God had plans for David, no doubt, and Saul was not going to get in the way of those plans. But God never told David to strike this one who had received God's anointing. Saul's day was going to come, but it wasn't going to be by the hand of David. It was going to be by the hand of God. And so David makes a remarkable statement that becomes a motto, a motto of sorts for him in times to come. Before he does so, he draws softly and silently towards Saul, who is unaware. But he, he makes this statement, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. Before he does all that, he gets draws softly and silently towards Saul, which is the very same thing that happened to Sisera, who was this antichrist figure back in Judges. And Jael comes over and crushes his head in a kind of Christ-like seat of the woman kind of style in Judges 4.21. He does the same thing. But David doesn't do that. David doesn't crush Saul. He doesn't kill him with the sword of Goliath like he had killed Goliath as he cut his head off with Goliath's own sword. 
David had promised not to cut off Jonathan's house back in 1 Samuel 20.15. And indeed, Saul would have his head cut off. It would happen in 1 Samuel 31.9 by the Philistines. But David doesn't cut his head. David cuts his robe. And in doing that, even, he's conscience, conscience stricken. He it literally he's smitten in his heart. And the same term is used of him in 2 Samuel 24.10 when he simply counted the people to consider his strength apart from the Lord. You know, when the skirt of Samuel's robe is torn, when Sam, Saul grabs hold in 1 Samuel 15.27, that symbolized the kingdom being ripped from him. Fabric is later torn with one section left for Judah and ten given to Jeroboam. 1 Kings 11.31. David, you see, feels guilty for anything that's even, even remotely associated with cutting off the Christ, cutting off the, the, the Messiah, cutting off the Lord's anointed. He sees that as the most heinous act. And later, in fact, when somebody came and boasted to David and said, hey, I, I cut off Saul's head, uh, I killed him with a sword, I should say, Back in sec or later in 2 Samuel 1, when he boasted of having done that, David had that man killed. You don't mess with the Lord's anointed. David doesn't even mention that. Well, let's just put it this way. David instructs his, his men in wisdom here. The idea that people would conspire against the Lord's anointed. To, to kill him, to David. It's just terrible. Even in his shame, Saul was the Lord's anointed. That was a fact. And that made all the difference in the respect that David gave to him. Enemy of his, though he was. Now, if cutting off Saul was terrible as the Lord's anointed, Imagine all the more that the heinousness of taking Jesus Christ who was without sin and without shame and placing him on the cross of curse and shame. That's what we remember in part. You know, no matter what dastardly deeds that men have been able to and women have been able to contrive in the history of humanity, and there's been plenty. There's been no greater monstrous act than crucifying the Lord of glory. We thank the, the God who works all things to his glory that he's able to take that act and he's able to turn it upside down and, and use it to bring glory to his name and to bring salvation to his people, though. That's what he does. And that's also what we remember at the table. By nature, of course, this is what we would do to the Lord of glory, too. We, we don't just, you know, blame Saul or blame Pontius Pilate or blame Pharisees or scribes or mobs. Because they represent us. Left to ourselves. 
What relief, though, and what good news that though such is who we are by nature, that by grace we can confess that the Lord Jesus used that heinous act to turn our lives around. That's what we're to profess. That's to be our priority. He saves us by His grace, and He saves us to serve Him in a sanctified way, and we get to do that when we've known Christ every single day. Every day is a day where we can say, God has turned our lives around in Jesus Christ for His glory. It's a great way to live. And we get reminded and assured of that at the table. You know, our children get marked, we saw that last week, with this very truth in their baptism. And boys and girls and young people and young adults, you certainly don't want to do what others have done and turn your backs on that saving testimony in Jesus Christ. You will want to profess it. Because turning your back on Christ or making it an apathetic thought or a secondary thought or a blasé thought is like trampling him underfoot. You know, even Saul deserved a measure of respect despite his shame as the Lord's anointed. Well, if he deserved that, the righteous and saving and reigning Jesus Christ deserves all our honor and needs to be number one in our lives. And we cannot be afraid to make that profession. We also hear David's words as well as his deeds. The impression that comes across from this section is that Saul is not justified in pursuing David as he does. It doesn't matter where David is. He is still standing on solid ground. Because he's not the one in the wrong. Saul is. It's David, not Saul, that is seen, even by Saul, as the rightful heir of the kingdom. That's what this passage reminds us. Interestingly, David is addressed by Saul as his son. Of course, Saul's the father-in-law of David here, but the words make sense because David would be the king after Saul like a son takes over for his father in due time. David is viewed in that way as the rightful heir of the kingdom. Now, it hasn't happened yet in reality, but it's in God's timing. That's what will happen. And that timing was part of what made David the righteous and Saul the unrighteous. You see, two opposites here. Saul's trying to undo what God has decreed. He's chasing after David. What are you doing? And he's trying to control God and take his place and step in, in the way of what God is doing, which is just foolishness. But David, on the other hand, has a good grip of reality here. He knows that God's timing is good. And he's, and he's not going to get in the way of God's timing. He's not going to run ahead of God's timing. 
He would not take vengeance upon those who were conspiring against him. He says, I'm leaving that to the Lord in his time. And in God's timing, glory was going to come David's way. And God would lift him up. But now was still a time of suffering. He goes to the stronghold. He's not in a position yet to receive that glory. But in the meantime, he's not going to insult and he's not going to repay. He's going to leave that judgment to God. And that's how David showed himself again to be the type that Jesus Christ would be when he took the same attitude. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, the rightful heir of the kingdom. But though the rightful heir and the righteous heir, Jesus, instead of repaying evil for evil, and because of the glory that awaited him, in accordance with the promises of God and the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He remained the righteous one that he was to the cross. And he proved who he was that way. And he showed himself to be the true king of his people. And the true savior of his people. The true king of his people that he had come to save. And the Lord calls us to that same attitude of putting our trust in the God who judges justly, who's going to work everything out to the glory of His name and for the glory of those who keep their trust in Him and follow Him. Particularly when they suffer for their faith. First Peter would say, it, when you, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. You know, sometimes when your parents and you tell your children, this is the way it's going to be. You think of yourselves as the bad cop. You think of yourself as the bad guy. Because in one way you want to give your kids the world. But sometimes it's not a very good idea to give them the world. Oh, it makes them happy for the moment. But what you need to give them is what's right. And sometimes when you do that, you suffer for it. Because they don't like it. And someday they don't like it to the point that they do the very things that this passage says we shouldn't be doing and they turn their back on Christ. And you suffer for it. So if when you do good, and you suffer for it. If you endure, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. That you don't just give up on that and say, well, I'll let them have whatever they want. For to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. And he left you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was the seat found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to whom? To the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what we're called to do. That suffering is not to be surprising to the people of God. 
Because we live a lot of times in a society that thinks if you have to suffer, something's wrong. Everything should be perfect. Everything should be pristine. We're not going to have to endure anything. We shouldn't have to. Let's just make sure that none of that happens. Well, it happened to David. And it happened to Jesus. And it happened to the apostles. We'll get reminded of that again tonight when we gather together in worship. And it happens today. It happens to those who stand for and who care and who profess the cause of Christ. If you're going to profess Christ, it's going to happen to you. If you profess Christ, it's happened to you. But we shouldn't lose heart over it. And vengeance, of course, betrays that. We take it into our own hands. But we must not lose heart thinking that our suffering is the end of things because it's leading to glory. Not just for David, not just for Christ, but for us. When in Christ we put our trust in the God who judges justly, who's going to make everything right. It's in Christ that we can say everything's going to be okay. Quickly, we notice also David's oath. It's an oath with Saul that he'll not cut off Saul's descendants in his name. David cuts off his skirt, or corner of it, but he promises not to cut off Saul of Benjamin's descendants, which is also something that didn't happen in Judges 20, right, with Benjamin? You go back and read that, you can hear about that. But this oath reminds us that there's mercy by oath in the house of David. Mercy by oath in the house of David. David cannot understand why Saul would pool his energies against someone like David, referring to him as a dead dog himself. In 2 Samuel 9.1, David's going to see to it that Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, who also referred to himself as a dead dog, he was going to sit at the table of the king and commune with him and eat with him. David was true to his word. Mercy by oath in the house of David. And that's the way Jesus is with us. Jesus is that way with us as well when our trust is in him. You can trust his word. He brings you to his table. We see in Jesus Christ there's mercy by oath in the house of David. Because our name deserves, because of our sin, to be blotted from the face of the earth and no more to be remembered than dead dogs. It's like the writer says, the hymn writer, he saved a wretch like me. But by mercy we come to know the saving work of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, and we take the name of Christ upon us so that we can have a lasting name. And we're able to sit at the king's table. And so if we want that lasting name, that's where we have to flee for mercy. That's whose name we have to profess. And by the oath that God makes, we find in him the one who is that anchor for our soul. He says, come to the table. Don't stay away. Believe what I said. I swore it. <clears throat> By my mercy, come to the table. We're reminded of these very things at the 
communion supper. It's a foretaste of communion with the Son of David everlastingly when Christ returns. And that's a better hope that Saul had. We can trust the God who judges justly. We can trust his word as just. He will not cast us away. He says, I swear to you, I want you at my table. Because David knew that God judges justly, that he acted the way he did, that he talked the way he did, and that he swore the way he did. And we're called to take on the same approach. We're called to rest on that very same God through Jesus Christ as Christ did for himself and for us. And that kind of an attitude is going to impact our actions and our words and our oaths. Of that we can be sure. When you know Christ. Because in Christ, we too know, like nobody else can know, that God's going to work out everything for those who love Him. He swears it. Because really only in Christ can we really say Everything's going to turn out right. Everything's going to be okay. Amen. I take a few moments uh, right after our prayer to approach the table, but let's take a moment to pray. God and Heavenly Father, we do ask that your gospel be and be encouragement for us, especially as we come to the table of the Lord this morning. And we'd ask that you'd hear us in Christ's name.